This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, and uh, here we are back after first for the year, City Limits, and um, we're... uh, we're kicking off with, uh, well, we're kicking off with transport because it's the first Wednesday of the month. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got John McPherson coming on later in the program. But uh, just a, a sad note, I'll just pour a cup of tea first, though. I think. Karina, do you want to? Karina's here. I'm yes, healing. please. Yes. Karina, Kevin, yeah. and a big old teapot. And, and a aquilera, and it's a Healy, and it's all that. And, and it's, it's Healy, a, and it's a healing <laughs> cup of tea. That's, a, that's it. It's, a, it's just a straight green tea today. Thank you very much, Kevin. Chinese green tea. Uh, look, we are starting with some sad news, though. Um, unfortunately, one of our, our regular, over many, many years, Paddy Moriarty, um, Associate Professor at Monash, Paddy died last week. We knew, we knew he was very ill, and uh, it's very sad to see him go. He, um, I was thinking back, I've known Paddy, I mentioned to John, last, John McPherson last night, as we talked about today. Uh, I, for Paddy, we started out a group back in the 80s, called the Melbourne Transport Study Group that used to meet and toss around ideas. Um, and we used to meet at Fitzroy Town Hall because at that time I was on the council and had a key to it. And the group lasted for a fair while. We used to meet Sunday mornings at the town hall once or twice a month until I got off council and they changed the lock. So that was the end of the Melbourne Transport Study Group. But uh, What year would you say this was, Kevin? Oh, it was 80... Well, 85, I got off council, so I was leading in the years leading up to that. In the early 80s. Yeah, and uh, and so Paddy, Paddy, of course, I think you know, is a great researcher, a writer of papers and books and uh, research, particularly in energy and transport issues. He was technically an engineer, um, and many engineers, of course, in that period we were opposed to because all they wanted to do was build roads and freeways, but uh, Paddy <laughs> was the absolute opposite of that. Uh, and um, just a great... Uh, in fact, we were both the same age. There was one year when he was in a class, um, we were at the same school together for, for, one, for one year, way back in the 50s, so um, there you are. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, but um, very sad, Paddy, and uh, he'll be sadly missed and uh, badly missed by this program because he made a major contribution to this program over many years. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Our, our yeah. condolences go out to the family, his partner, you know. Yeah, Bernadette, yeah. All of this, yeah. 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 So that's, uh, that's a sad way to start the year. The other one, of mm. course, over the break was uh, Joan Coxedge died, well-known political activist, and... Uh, mm. There's a, we'll talk more about that later because there's a memorial for her. Other, other programs are talking about her. And there's a memorial service for her at the Unitarian Church at 2 o'clock on Saturday the 24th in a couple of weeks' time. So um, there'll be a lot said there, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's off to a sad start for the year, but uh, here we are. But also um, climate change is having an impact around the world. At the moment there's massive fires in Chile where you know, your, your family come from. Um, 
just uh, have you got any comments on that at all around what's going on? Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts yeah. about it. I did a bit of a, a research. You'll have to bear with me, listeners, because half my notes are in Spanish from Spanish news sites. Um, but the last kind of update I saw, so what was it? It started on, I think the fires started on Friday. At some point they were able to finally extinguish the majority of them by about Sunday or Monday. Um, but it was kind of like... I would say like Chile's version of black was a black Saturday yeah. that we had yeah. here. So 43,000 hectares um, by yesterday, the, the death toll was 123 people um, with hundreds missing from the region around Valparaiso, um, which is, was the first kind of port of Chile and like going further away into the hills away from the port, uh, the poorer neighborhoods are and I was looking at one of the quotes from some of the forestry engineers, and it's not going to be a direct quote at some of the universities, but a lot of them cited that also to the, you know, of course, the the ever-increasing and worsening heat waves per summer, um, an 18-year drought in Chile as well, that, you know, despite some wet winters over the past few years was was just incredibly dry forest and interestingly attributed a lot of it to the monocultures that were that were pushed and planted during the dictatorship of thousands of hectares of of pine and eucalyptus obviously very flammable um trees and and yeah just uh you know how do you say a monoculture like it's just it's just the same tree for mm. As far as the eye can see, so I thought I thought that was a pretty interesting point. I also saw a graffiti, a video of a graffiti on a highway, with a little statement on it by, and I'm not sure if it was the people that did it, but it said, "Our tragedy is their business," and they made a little statement saying, um, "Wildfires have been a part of the summer itinerary in much of the country for nearly a decade. Fires that directly affect the sectors where we, the working class, live." We see every summer with the press's morbidity over our pains, how governments on duty take political advantage. We see how all the, uh, we see how a few gain from the deterioration of the burnt ground. Intentionality is undeniable. Mm. So that's I thought that was some food for thought and yeah. an interesting statement. And the point about the working class, because I saw an item on the SBS News. Um, uh, indicated that many of the homes that were destroyed, which are almost makeshift shanties, because you know, it indicated the real poverty of the people being affected by the fires. I think. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say anything about anyone, but it has been implied by a few people that that the in terms of the the business part, it is good for real estate to to clear certain parts of. Um, the country, especially when it hasn't that, formally you, been claimed. But you wouldn't say that, would you? I mean, I wouldn't name any companies. No, no, no. I thought it was interesting as well that that, um, that academic, that forestry engineer kind of um, cited back the, the pine and eucalyptus plantations during mm. the dictatorship. Um, because interestingly, there's been some, I don't know, have you heard what's been going on in Argentina? Um, tell me. Uh, so a far... have, there's been items, but tell me which bit you're talking. About. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so there's been this this um, election, yeah. and um, a far right, I guess, a yeah. populist right wing right. candidate came into power in um, as president in 
at the start of December at some point. Mateo, his name is, yeah. Uh, Javier Milei. Malay, that's it, yeah. yeah. Um, so he assumed office at the start of December and he had said, he's widely quoted as having said that climate change is a socialist lie. Um, <laughs> you know, and he cut, he cut various uh, government ministries, including that of, um, you know, the women's department and, and, and obviously environment. He cut them down from 18 government ministries to nine. Um, and is putting in some pretty heavy austerity measures. So a lot of um, Argentinian people, tens of thousands, are taking to the streets, street protest, uh, and a general strike was called at the end of mm. last month. But I, I have noticed that their, I think it's their Minister of Defence or something like that, is is pushing to impose some pretty heavy anti-protest yeah, he, he went to the Davos gathering of the filthy rich and made a speech there in which, uh, even to the filthy rich, he uh, he implied they weren't quite... He, he didn't put it in these terms directly, but if you analyse what he said, he was saying you aren't doing nearly enough to oppress the working class, you know. That's basically what he was saying. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've seen them both say some pretty dodgy things, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So there you are. What about you? Well, I came with I came with two items. I feel like that's a record well, for that's, me. That's, that's great, but thanks for that. That's that's because I think that's uh, that's really important, and it is it is a reflection on the whole climate change impact on the world. Of and course, noting the intentionality of yeah, of yeah. Um, neoliberal government policies, you know, is worthwhile. Yeah. Look, one thing I did want to talk about. I do it every year, but I have my my annual bitch <laughs> about. about the tennis, and uh, having said oh, that, yeah. having said that, I'm as a sports fan, I enjoy watching the game, but it's what around what's around it that really annoys me. Yep. Uh, I've mentioned time and again um, that the Kane government uh, did a tragedy for Victoria when it gave all that land to the tennis people anyway, uh, land that was the Yarrabang speakers going back. Um, it has a real working class history. Uh, and also was all the venue for years and years and years, the, the end of the and what were in those days huge May Day marches in Melbourne, and they used to always always end on the Yarra Bank there with lots of stalls and um, particularly ethnic groups providing food and all sorts of things like that. And a well-known yeah. like public speaking well, yeah, spot. That's or right, yep. all that. But now, of course, it and of course it was also a venue when we um, in the Springbok tour, the great riot that time too, back in seventy two or whatever year that was. Um, but not only have we given them the land, but we've put millions of public dollars into it. And this year, we gave them another forty three million to bail them out. Oof. And yet they charge fortunes. I believe it costs thousands to go to the men's final, for instance, unless, of course. Then you, you get the financial review having a couple of pages of pictures of the absolute elite of our society all enjoying themselves um, with the Prime Minister and the Premier sitting next to the President of the Tennis, who's uh, Jane Herdelicker, who of course is also the CEO of Virgin Airlines. Mm. Um, but all the big business people are there now. I presume they're not paying the thousands of dollars. They're all guests of corporates. Um, but the, the rank-and-file public are there. Um, and it just annoys the hell out of me that um, it's really a, a very elitist thing. Uh, I don't mind the sports side of it, but it's an elitist thing, and um, it's lots and lots of public money going to what was you know, working-class history. Now, the other thing that really annoyed me this year was 
they banned Palestinian flags. Mm. Uh, so they say it's not political, but they, the Russian and Belarusian players weren't allowed. They weren't. A, they weren't. A, they, they didn't have their flags. They had no, black. They, they, they were just. Uh, they just were not independent. But that's not political. No. Um, Banning political, banning Palestinian flag is not political, but they could have Israeli flags if an Israeli player was playing. Mm. There were no and Palestinian mm. soccer shirts and things like that, like jerseys well, yeah. and anything, anything remotely. Nothing, and, and of course, whenever there were a couple of protests in the course of it, and they were thrown out. And the sad mm. thing is, and it's a reflection on those paying all that money, so maybe they deserve to get ripped off. The crowd cheered when the Palestinian protesters were, were thrown out, so that. Um, that got to me as well, but that's just my little annual tennis go. But it gives me the, as you can tell, <laughs> people people who are comfortable don't, you know, they, it's it's an inconvenience to a lot of the mainstream public, perhaps. Um, poor poor things, and in terms of the elite, they got to enjoy themselves somehow, well, Kevin. Knowing that their wealth comes at the cost of boots on necks, right? It's summer, it's summertime. <laughs> they've got to they've got to build up to get ready to oppress the working class for the rest of the year. It's, that's it. You need to take some solace. <laughs> That's <somehow>. right. <laughs> You've got to build yourself up to, to take the working class, let me tell you. And how are they doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a sip of tea here. Hang on a mm. You enjoy your tea. Ah, yes, yes. Now, look, um, an astonishing letter also in the Financial Review a couple of weeks ago. It was below one. There's two. Malcolm McDonald, you know, mate of ours, whom we think Malcolm, I keep saying, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, old, he's even older than me. Really? Uh, yeah, he's old, old, old. Um, but Malcolm still gets letters in the age, etc. And he had a letter in the Financial Review. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out because it's, it's a good letter. He said, the part of Palestine allocated by the UN for the State of Israel in 1948 stipulated no displacement of or disadvantage to Palestinian residents. Palestinians were allocated a separate state that also envisaged no displacement of Jewish residents. Palestinians have certainly been displaced from Israel and now Israeli politicians deny the right of Palestinians to have their separate state while Israel encourages settlers to encroach on Palestinian property, Malcolm MacDonald. Um, now under that there was a letter from a bloke called Christian Pelliaro of Bondi Beach, New South Wales. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was replying that Thomas Friedman, a fairly conservative American writer, has been writing a lot about the issue, and he had an article about Netanyahu, um, and this is a response to that. Um, and this bloke, Pagliaro, says, I found these, this sentence in Thomas Friedman's article, Why Netanyahu is Turning Against Biden, and the sentence he quotes... Uh, he found it absolutely vile, he says, because, and the sentence was, because every trend around Israel is only going to get worse. More non-state actors, more super-empowered angry men with drones from Best Buy, a more powerful Iran, more um, TikTok uh, haters, war- haters warped by streaming videos of dead Palestinian babies in Gaza. And that's the end of that quote. Then the, he says, I trust... I don't have to explain why these last few words should not be published by any self-respecting news organisation. So apparently no self-respecting news organisation should mention the fact that babies have been killed in Gaza, according to him. It's, I just found it quite astonishing. I wondered what he was on about. But there you are. Uh, there was also a, a very good article by a bloke called James Curran, who's a foreign editor at uh, the Financial Review, international editor, 
uh, about John Howard and really attacking him over taking Australia into the Iraq war going way back. This follows the fact that it was revealed that certain papers of the time were never put into the archives and sort of got lost and we don't know what happened and there's still no explanation of why the government did it. Um, uh, but he had a very good article really tearing strips off John Howard, absolute strips off. But it struck me that, you know, it's all very well to say this, which is now X number of years later, but at the time I can't recall when we had 200,000 people on the street in Melbourne, for instance, on a Friday night, and the Herald Sun next morning didn't even have a word about it, not a word. Uh. Um, uh, uh, this is, I know this is the Financial Review, but at the time I can't recall any of our major newspapers questioning or attacking Howard for going to war at that stage. They all were gung-ho about going to war and, uh, and taking on these people who had weapons of mass destruction all over the place and were going to destroy the world and invade Australia any day now. Um, but now how many years later? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, something um, kicked in? Yeah, uh, and he, he just he concludes by he concludes by saying, mm-hmm. but but it's not to be forgotten that Prime Minister Harold Holt too went all the way with an American president in an American war, but shortly thereafter, while the war was being lost, both Holt and LBJ met unhappy ends. John, Johnson had to give up his ambitions to stand again and retired in great humiliation. Holt disappeared while swimming at Cheviot Beach, never to be seen again. John Howard, thankfully, has escaped Holt's watery fate, but he cannot hold back the tide of history's judgment on his decision to go to war. Uh, but the whole article is incredibly scathing. Uh, and, of course, it reminds me, too, of, I suppose we all comment on it, one of the most insensitive tributes or... Uh, to anybody, of course, it was Harold Holt with the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool in yes. Melbourne, which, uh, you know, it's, it is one of the great ironies, isn't it? Uh, but anyway, there you are. Um, you don't think uh, it was purposeful, like, you know, teach, oh, I, teach I, kids how they, to swim? They, I mean, who knows for a how much they thought it through when they did it, but mm. certainly it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it certainly created a lot of jokes over the years, anyway. Um, now, also, it's good to see that the ABC's appointed a new chairperson, Kim Williams, who for years and years worked for either directly, worked, well, he worked directly for Murdoch, either at News Limited or at Fox. Um, so a bloke who comes out of the Murdoch empire as an absolute lackey of Murdoch for many, many years is now in charge of the ABC. It's, That'd be right. It's good to see you. I feel like that's a whole other kettle of worms, those three, yeah, those three right. letters. Yeah, 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 that's Let's right. See. Uh, also, um, there was a, a dreadful decision in the federal court uh, because we talked before the break. We talked a few times about the Tiwi Island case against Santos uh, mm. the, up at Barossa, uh, and they were saying the pipeline would go through their their sacred waters, traditional waters, and traditional land. And of course, the court ruled in favour of Santos that they have a right to uh, yep. destroy Tiwi and, and go into what they bloody well like out in the ocean. And there were two two aspects of this. One was it claimed that the traditional law thing didn't count anyway, which is bloody terrible. Uh, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. But secondly, uh, the law the law was based purely on whether or not. Uh, it infringed uh, traditional beliefs of of the Tiwi Island people, but the the, the actual climate impact of the gas they're going to produce and the possible dangers to the to the ocean if anything goes wrong, and we know in these things, even though they they give us assurances, things do go wrong. 
there's lots of examples all over the world, including north of Australia a few years ago. Mm. Uh, but the impact of it, either directly there or the use of the gas and the impact it will have on climate in the future, uh, are not taken into account at all by the law. They can't, they can't even consider it. Now, that seems to me to be, in these sort of cases now, the most pertinent point you ought to be arguing. But you, it's not even included. But, it, but back to the Indigenous one, mm-hmm. and there's a headline in a, in a financial review just last week um, under, under, the, under the companies and markets section of the paper, and the headline is, The Law's Veneration of Indigenous Mythology Goes Too Far and Many Pay. Now, the many who pay, of course, are the shareholders yes. who, who can't make a profit. Mm. Um, and uh, and, it, it's, and it's also Indigenous mythology. Now, apparently, believing in a virgin birth or raising people from the dead or then ascending into the heavens... Um, is not mythology, it's fact. It's absolutely you know, belief we have to go along with. Oh, it's um, institutionalised, Kevin. There's monies behind that's it. That's right. So all, all, the, so all the non-myths, apparently, of Christian, of Islam, of Buddhist, of, of Hindu, of whatever religion you like to take, uh, we have to respect. But with our own Indigenous people, it's mythology. Um, uh, mm. Now, I, I think none of it's... I, I don't believe any of this religious stuff, I must admit. But nonetheless, um, if you're going to say religious beliefs have a right to be taken into account in the case of most of them, but not in this case, then I think, then I think you're totally wrong, that's all. Yeah. I also think it's a bit arbitrary to say, like... Well, there's no, there's nothing that's breaching kind of traditional law about this because it's absolutely a new imposition, isn't it? Is uh, extractivism. Yes. So, so yeah. why why should there be some very specific um, traditional <laughs> kind of pushback towards that that can be cited? Well, the traditional myth, it's not a mythology, but the traditional rights of profit take precedence over right. everything else. And uh, that's, the, that's the tragedy of it all. Um, now, we're going to go to John McPherson very shortly. I also want to... I, I just also want to... Oh, no, I'll wait till the property day, actually, because there was an, a bloke, one of the... A, a, a major... Um, oh, no, I'll mention it now. Um, yeah, don't leave us hanging, Kevin. OK, a bloke called Lang Walker, who's one of the biggest developers in Australia... He died last week. Now, there were pages and pages, literally, in the Financial Review, what a great person he was uh, and what a great developer he was. Uh, it was all about him making money, you know, but it, that made him a great man. Now, at the weekend, um, we know that um, Lowitcher O'Donoghue died and um, she was you know, a, a really great Indigenous leader over many, many years in this country. Now, uh, after giving many pages to, um, to the other bloke, when she died, it got, it got about 10 paragraphs on, in a single column on page six of the Financial Review, and it got, I think, about eight paragraphs uh, at the bottom of a page in the Herald Sun, which had also given massive coverage to the death of the developer. Uh, I just found the, the, the contrast really interesting because I think as human beings go, I know which one I'd want to uh, have, you know, be on the side mm. of. Uh, but uh, 
but there you are. And of course, on that on that thing, the Herald Sun again whips up um, the thing about the mythology and the and the beliefs, and they they whipped up they whipped up an Aboriginal leader, Indigenous they call them you know. Um, hijackers gaming system, cultural heritage advocate says some ride gravy train. So they're getting stuck into people saying they're just using it for their own ends to to frustrate the poor bloody mining community, which is terrible. Mm. Isn't it? Yeah, bloody awful. Poor darlings. Now, we're going to have a song and then we're going to do John McPherson. Yes, now. I was going to ask I, you about yeah, this. But I'm not going to sing it. Which is which means you're, you're <laughs> how lucky you are. I'm still waiting for our poetry episode where you read us all oh, the poetry all right, you've I'll, written. I'll, I'll come up with some. Now I'll give you that. It's track twelve, by the way, the one we're going to play. All right, and, I'd like um, to talk a little bit about it. Yes, and now while we're playing this, because we mentioned about um, poor old Patty dying, but also in the last couple of weeks, uh, Melanie, uh, who went under the name mostly recorded under the name Melanie, but also Melanie Sapka, died a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, she was very much part of my generation of music at that period. She was part of that whole Joplin uh, Woodside generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, though, I find an interesting juxtapositioning here because they they talk often often about the twenty seven year thing that uh, you know, ah uh, yes, yeah, Hendrix and Joplin and uh, even Amy Winehouse uh, all died at twenty seven. Um, and I've got a feeling, I'm pretty sure, that um, Melanie Safka was reversed it. She was 72, I think, when she died. So there you are. That's, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. That's um, a um, nice yeah. observation. Anyway, we're going to play her cover of a, 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 um, a Stones hit, uh, Ruby Tuesday. And I think it's a far better version than the original Stones hit. I, uh, we're a bit silly playing it at 9.25 in the morning. It's, it's a 3 o'clock in the morning Stone out of your head, no pun intended. At about, oh, we don't know where our listeners at a, are. At about forty thousand, <laughs> at about forty thousand decibels. That's the sort of song it is. But they anyway, can't assume what they're doing. So turn up the volume. Here she goes, <laughs> Melanie Sapka, tribute to her and Ruby Tuesday. She would never say where she came from Yesterday don't matter Cause it's gone While the sun is bright Or in the dark Can't be chained to life 
Okay, we're back online and we've got John McPherson, who's, um, as people know, over many years, our regular commentator on transport issues, back for another year, John. And uh, I was saying yeah. earlier on the program, and I mentioned to you last night, um, talking about poor old Paddy Moriarty dying, Sure. Um, how back in 85 or in the early 80s we had a group going and we were discussing issues that we're still discussing today because, uh, while I think we had some wonderful ideas and still do, um, governments don't seem to listen. Yep. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's probably got worse with governments. I think they're even more focused on on um, um, you know doing the right thing by their uh, their sponsors and the people who pay them. You know, pay them um, money to run elections and things like that. I reckon. I think it's got worse. Speaking of, um, a newsletter came out in our letterboxes yesterday. You got one, I got yeah, one in the letterbox. Yeah. Um, from Melbourne Airport, it's the usual PR thing, promoting their yeah. bid for a third runway. Uh, but it, it says they want lots more buses to service the airport. Anything about that? Comment on that? Yeah, yeah. well, that's interesting, isn't it? They, it's good that they want more buses, and they, they certainly should be 
ordinary bus bus network and extending into the airport from the surrounding suburbs as well as links you know from further away like an express link from even Sunbury might be a good idea because that would service you know the uh, Bendigo line people uh, and then also maybe a bus from um, Sunshine while we wait interminably for the for the um, uh, you know rail link to the airport from the city the, which is of but course the, but the rail link's been promised John so it must be coming I'm sure but oh yeah um, so you know <laughs> it's um, it's it's it, they're interested in they've suddenly got interested in the idea of um, extending the bus like bus network into the airport and that's a good thing but uh, I think what they're doing really is they realise that they can turn the airport into a economic hub, a commercial hub, which will generate more money for the people who um, run the airport. And because the airport's not really under direct state government control, they can really do, you know, close to whatever they like. Yeah, and they but they do at least concede something that we've been saying for years about yeah. about things generally. They say existing bus services start too late, finish too early, and do not yep. run often enough. Yeah, that's, that's well, that a major concession. That's right. Well, that it is. It could be taken straight from the activist handbook on public transport in Melbourne, and it's it's true. It remains true, and judging on past performance, it'll continue to be true into the future. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, they're still disputing, of course, because they 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 want the um, they want the station for the for the rail for the rail link to go underground, and the government mm. wants it above ground, and that's where the current dispute is, and it's lying there. But it's always it's yet another hold up in what's been held up now for about fifty or sixty years anyway. So what's it matter? Yeah, yeah. Well, the scary thing is, I mean, the state government is under the pump financially. And um, they probably don't mind at all putting off the airport rail link as long as, as long as possible, even if they've promised it. Uh, you know, it's um, it's it's a mess. But a lot could be done with buses if if everybody, you know, could could get get together with it. And even extending the nearby trams to the airport wouldn't be a bad idea either. The um, airport west, airport west, yeah, yeah. tram. Could could it's not very far. I think it's only about two kilometres or three kilometres. It terminates around Essendon Airport somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah, but for yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's you know there's there's um, lots of things that are really needed apart from the the direct express link from the um, CBD. That is a problem that everybody thinks. Oh, the, the express CBD rail link would would fix everything. Well, it wouldn't. And particularly, it wouldn't fix things for workers who live close, close to closest to the airport, which, of course, people tend to do if they've got a long-term job at the airport. They'll, they'll probably end up living fairly close to it. But at the moment, there's not very much public transport that can help you get there. No, if you want to get there, if you if you're due to get there early in the morning, then probably uh-huh. nothing at all. You're going to have to have a car, presumably. Oh yeah, yeah, and even oh. even you know, even in the middle of the day, it's still. It's still pretty pretty sad, um, and of course, public transport gets. <laughs> this is the other side of the uh, airport management. It, public transport buses and things, the ones that do run, when they get to the airport, they tend to get treated pretty badly. The stops tend to be, you know, away well, well away from the centre of the action, uh, because it's convenient for the airport to put them there, out of the way where they don't 
upset things for cars and taxis and Ubers, things like that. Yeah, the uh, also the 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 mob kinetic the mob who do run the yes. um, the sky bus service or the bus right. service out there, and they are in fact we last night we have discovered since they're actually run by they're owned by a Canadian pension fund OP uh-huh. Trust OP Trust and London listed investor Foresight Group, but they uh-huh. they have they have investment in in public transport all over. Mainly yep. buses all over all yeah. over the place, not just Australia. Yeah. But also, they're they're currently apart from running that and wanting to buy up more buses in Australia, they they say they want a bid for the Melbourne tram system when it comes up for tender again. So that's interesting. Oh, that that, that is interesting. It's only recently had a new tender signed. I think the uh, the, the tram system. I can't I recall it the last time. There was a there was a union campaign to try to get the whole thing when when it did come mm. up to get it taken yeah. back into public hands. I yeah. notice yeah. Friends of the Earth are currently running a campaign along those lines, saying let's bring it all right. back into public hands. But yeah. this mob want to bid for yep. it and take it yep. off. Well, the... it's interesting that a lot of things that went private twenty five years ago are now coming back into public hands because everybody well well that means the um, the um, you know the people who care about such things now have discovered how much worse p- private ownership can be, because the uh, the focus is on money making rather than making good service, and uh, that 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 means that you cut back the um, cut back the service every way you can, really, um, and yeah, and that's really what's happened. The only positive with this kinetic mob is that they say they're likely to be pitched um, mm-hmm. as an energy um, transition story given it play plan, oh, yeah. they plan to have most of their buses and uh, and depots running on electricity in the next decade and that renewable... Oh, well, uh, well, yeah. well in, in Melbourne's case, of course, any electric buses, the fleet remains the, in the control of the government. They, the government owns the rolling stock, so Kinetic won't have to worry about you know, whether buses are electric or diesel, the government will choose when things go electric. There are a few electric buses running. I've, I've just, I discovered in the last few days in the western western suburbs of Melbourne. So that's good to hear that there are some running. But of course, you know, it should be one of, one of the best things that can happen to the bus fleet is it can go, it can go electric because it really does improve the experience for the user and of course cuts cuts down on pollution, noise and emissions from the bus because the bus basically doesn't have any emissions in the exhaust pipe. It just has bits of rubber wearing off the wheels, which, of course, is another thing we forget about but happens you know, every every time the wheel goes round. Yeah, so Helen, Vandenberg, Helen Vandenberg points it out all the time because then it gets washed into the waterways and yes, she, she, yes, she, yes, uh, she's big right. on that one. That's right, um, yeah, yeah. The... Um, but John, also yeah. fascinating from a business point of view, because I noticed mm. Ventura bus, which has been owned in Australia here for many, many years, mm. Mm. Um, has just been sold to a Singapore mob called Keppel for right. six hundred million, and you've yep. got this kinetic mob trying to buy up buses all over the place yeah. and, and paying big money, and yet we have incredibly bad services. So, what, what's the <laughs> what's the profit motive here? Well, the, the, obviously these. These people think they can run the services that the government tells them to run um, at, at, at cheaply, more cheaply, and they can make more money. 
apparently what's that's what's going on. They um, they won't improve the service level simply because they think it's a good idea. Um, it just doesn't happen like that. The the private operators run what the government specify and tell them to run. Sadly, that's what we've discovered with the with the uh, rail, the suburban rail system. That nothing much improves really when you when you come down to it. When when these so-called U-Butte overseas train operators came in, uh, nothing much improved because they still were running the the same services they were told to run previously by the government. So <laughs> so obviously they they they're bidding big to take public money. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if if I rent a house. Yeah. Uh, I pay the landlord who owns the house. But in this yeah. case, the public owns the assets, mm-hmm. but we pay rent to the people who rent an office. It's, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they're, they're running it. You know, that's important. They're the, they're the, they're the, they're the entrepreneurs, the operators. Yeah, they're, they're special. We're, the passengers really are um, yeah, collateral damage, really. <laughs> that's right, and get in the way. Yeah, that's right. It's really, it really is a bit like that. There are know. a few proposals to put cardboard cutouts when they're on buses and just keep running and not bother to stop. Well, they'd, they'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> if the cardboard cutouts could count each as a proper passenger, they'd love it because they don't, they don't complain. <laughs> or, you know, a whole lot of other virtues that real people don't have, yeah. On that electric thing, I do want to get on to the government's proposal this week sure. about new um, new emission standards for cars, but you did tell me that over the break you've seen a lot of stuff on transport you wanted to talk about. Some yeah, well, I'll, I'll try and skip skip through a few things. It's the Dunkley by-election's coming up, and um, both, both sides are sort of, you know, as you pointed out, both sides are sort of, saying, oh, wouldn't it be good to extend the um, suburban rail electrification, the line from um, um, Frankston down to Baxter? And, and yes, it would be, would be a good idea that, you know, the, the city has expanded down that way hugely. And it, it's one of those things that, that a, sensible, a sensible government, a sensible situation you would do. It's a little bit like the airport rail link. Um, but both sides are saying, "Oh well, we'll study it, and it, oh, it might cost 1.3 billion to um, extend the track to um, to Baxter." So that's that's interesting. It's another well, the Labor government, things. in fact, did promise to do it and then backed off the promise. Yeah, that's right. They did, didn't they? Yeah. yeah it's it's um, it's one of those things. Governments wave in front of the voting voting electorate, and then you know we've learned through bitter experience in Victoria, then step back from and say, oh no, we can't really do it. Um, uh, an interesting one, a bad accident happened last year where a cyclist got killed and it was on the in the middle of the construction for the uh, link that's coming from the um, the tunnel under the Maribyrnong River, you know, the um, the new link yep. that's uh, coming from that direction to enhance, quote-unquote, capacity um, for people travelling in from the west by car or truck to the city. And um, I think a, a coroner's inquiry was finally held, and this cyclist and a truck were both given green lights. The truck was given a green light that allowed it to turn left and the cyclist was on a, a separate cyclist path 
but on the other side of a big concrete pillar. And the, um, the truck driver made the turn and he had no chance to see the cyclist coming coming along towards the intersection. And the cyclist wouldn't have seen the truck until the last minute when he would have seen the nose of the truck come beyond the pillar. Unfortunately, the cyclist crashed into the truck and was killed. Now, the authorities, I mean, the road authorities, all sorts of people were given many warnings because people piped up after when the when the inquiry was on and and told told the coroner's inquiry that they had made complaints to various authorities saying the situation was extremely dangerous and and this so it was known about by the authorities but nothing was done to um, fix the situation it was particularly bad because of the large pillar which made it very hard for either the cyclist or the truck to see that the other person was approaching. So it's an interesting situation. Whether anything real has been done since to fix it, I don't know, but it's the sort of thing that seems to take, sometimes takes decades in Melbourne to to get improved or fixed. And it was a classic, classic example of, of nothing happening, even though it was clearly a, a really bad situation waiting to happen. Right, so, so how many people have to get killed before you do something? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know whether somebody keeps count. I mean, it's a ghoulish point of view, but you almost get the feeling that's what happens. It has to get to a really incredible stage of, of, um, of um, you know, ridiculousness, badness, before anything happens. Um, mm. another, another thing, too, John Pesudo, the... Um, opposition leader, the, the rather besieged opposition leader yes. at the moment, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, he's promised to pause and review the uh, suburban rail loop, the big thing that's supposed to go right around the outside of Melbourne, if if and when they form a government. Um, I sort of have some sympathy for that position because I think the uh, SRL should be put on the back burner right now. But um, clearly our new... Uh, shiny um, Premier isn't going to do that because she's been deeply involved in the project ever since as, um, as Andrew's offsider. So uh, I'm afraid nothing's happening there. She's she's trying to steam ahead with the whole thing. They're, they're the main things I wanted to mention, Kev. Yeah, it's all very interesting, isn't it? Did you notice, yeah. by the way, that, um, again, when we talked earlier about climate change and what it's doing, that over in, um, in the West, one of... Um, Twitty Forest's Fortescue trains came off the rails in the heat because the lines buckled. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I didn't yeah, really catch that either. Where did you read that? The financial review? Yeah, it, it held, up his, uh, <laughs> held up his making profit for several days, poor man. Yeah, well, that would. That would, that would probably knock a few million off his, um, off his fortune. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Um, uh, it's always intrigued me that, they, you know, that the heavy, very heavy-duty rail, railways in the in the west, who run in you know temperatures up to fifty degrees and more. Well, this was a fifty degree day. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. that's yeah. Uh, that, um, that there seemed to be very little problem with buckling rails, um, whereas of course um, our own beeline system can 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 be worried about buckling rails and anything, you know, even below 40 degrees. That's right. <laughs> That's right. In, in icy weather. That's right. <laughs> um, 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 they build the lines 
extremely heavy duty uh, over in the west because they run such heavy and long trains. Um, you know, the whole train pull-up can weigh 30,000 30, tonnes. You know, it's incredible. The size of a decent-sized ship. Um, but uh, apparently there's a limit. You know, the the, um, the rails are still held on, on sleepers and the sleepers are held in ballast. They're not they're not in concrete, and that um, you know if there's enough stress put on the rails by the heat, causing the rails to want to expand, it it can can happen. So I I, I think that means um, I have to worry a bit more about how they build their track. And I, you know I know it's a, it's probably the most heavy duty track in the world on those railways in in Western Australia already, yeah. Yeah, well, I think they were off the rails for about three days before they fixed it up again, but anyway, poor old, yeah, poor old yeah, Twitty, well, it, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you, you know, you've got to um, get, you, yeah, you've got to knock, get the wagons out of the road, and, you know, presumably they were full of iron ore coming down from the mine, and then you've got to, um, then you've got to rebuild it, rebuild the track, and, you know, with furious 24-hour action, and... Uh, get those trains moving because it takes quite a few train loads right. of water to ship. Keep the profit running along the rails. Oh, yes, oh, yes, yes that's yes, right. Yes, yes my yes, very yes. word. But, um, but again, it's another issue of, you know, private... I'm not saying private. I'm saying, trying to say climate change, um, you know, causing higher temperatures. And Twiggy, Twiggy to, to his credit, is, you know, is involved in quite a few pro- projects that um, should be a good influence on, on climate change. Even though, on the other hand, he's also making big money out of iron ore. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he's got a coming and going, so to speak. That's except, right. Except when the lines buckle. Yeah, um, he, he does. Um, he does trying to do good things for his image. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Now, speaking of image, the, the government has um, has announced this week it's putting carbon caps on uh, on emissions uh, at last. We've been talked about for years. Yes. Australia's so far behind. Um, yes. In fact, we're we're so far behind that um, that says based on vehicle emission data for 2023 for the top 10 best-selling vehicles, right. emissions from utes and vans will have to fall 10.3% just to reach the 2020-25 starting point uh-huh. before dropping another 62% by 2030. So it's all being phased in. But uh, uh-huh. I think what it shows is that our emission standards are so bad to start with. Well, they're non-existent. That's that's well, that's so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, I mean, we've been apparently we in Russia have been the um, the naughty boys in the corner, uh, uh, which you know don't you don't that don't feel much um, much joy about. Mm. You know that sort of company. No, we did have some limited emission standards, but then the government wiped them out altogether. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know. That was possibly the Tony Abbott um, government, who were the wreckers, yeah, that's right. real wreckers that's on right. any anything. Um, uh, the previous Labor government, you know, with um, Rudd and uh, and uh, Gillard had tried to do. Uh, but yeah, well, we now know where Tony Abbott stands on climate change. He, he, he it's worse, and he doesn't believe it. He just, you know, thinks that um, it's a it's a it's a communist plot. I think. Yeah, he does, and it's yeah, because yeah. even though this is being phased in, yeah. um, and it's um, it says by the time we get to twenty thirty or whatever, yeah. we'll have reached the American standard, which they've had for something like fifty years. Yes, and yet one of the um, automotive groups, 
um, said, look, um, we should slow down, we're going too fast. And I thought, well, 50 years difference, which bit, which bit do you have to slow down, for God's sake? Well, you know, there's been plenty of practice across the world in meeting these sort of requirements. It isn't as if we're pioneering some new some new new uh, you know new strategy or anything it's, no and it's, also oh, it's only for new cars so the old the old oh, cars well, can fit. Is, yeah. yeah so yeah. but also they're saying therefore it could be a problem getting new cars here they'll be more expensive but of course given that other countries have these standards those cars mm. exist so they must mm. be able to, mm. well, must well, be able to get you, them. well of course you can argue oh well if we're going to if we're going to be sent the same cars as everywhere else they'll be cheaper won't they because they won't have to be to be especially fixed for Australia to emit more pollution. <laughs> you see what I'm saying there? I can see what you're saying. and uh, But although, uh, speaking of Tony Abbott and the opposition, yeah. they, they say, in fact, um, that it, um, it warned Australia's favourite vehicles could soon be unavailable if Labor's fuel efficiency standard fails to strike the correct balance between minimising <laughs> costs, reducing emissions and maximising choice. Choice is so important. Uh, well, well, choice to get a car that pollutes like mad. Well, Australia's favourite vehicle now seems to be this, a huge ute, and the utes are getting much bigger and uh, using more uh, using more fuel. So anything that puts a, puts a limit on the size of the utes and brings the size down is, is, a, is a damn good thing because there's no there's no justification for nearly all these huge utes. They're really just just something to improve the ego situation of the driver. Um, they're just they're just getting ludicrously large. Well, uh, that's a danger there because, in fact, uh, transport spokes. This is Bridget McKenzie, the National oh, yeah, Party right. person, yeah, yeah. and climate change spokesman Ted O'Brien oh, said uh, the car industry feared Labor's heavy-handed approach would drive Utes off Australian roads. Then, <laughs> gone we have, out well, the we door. Haven't got it. We haven't got a major industry to start with. We don't. We don't build anything in Australia. I, I, I doubt it. We, well, we build a small number of spare parts for aftermarket things, and that's about it. But no, they're just being, they're just being stupid. Uh, <laughs> what? You know, the youth have just got larger and larger and larger, and uh, they, they're uh, out of, you know, it's out of, it's out of control. Uh, and then you get these path- sad, pathetic letters to the newspaper saying, oh, I need the biggest shoot I can get to tow my huge, you know, something or other. Well, okay, that's nice, but, you know, I don't think the whole, the whole fleet of vehicles in Australia has to get more and more gargantuan. One of the reasons these utes have got so big in America, you know, the um, trucks, they call them trucks over there, is because the pollution standards are actually... Not as stringent on on trucks, small trucks, as they are in cars. So you know, it's part. Of, if if we adopt the American situation exactly, it's a way to get round some of the pollution standards that apply to cars. So you can see you can see where they're going there, can't you? Yeah, and again, again one of the um, automobile industry spokespeople uh, said that in America. Um, people are subsidised. The, the the seller and the buyer are both subsidised, mm. which makes them cheaper. Uh, I think mm. what the inference was that therefore, if we're going to do anything here, the government should foot the bill and uh, and subsidise <laughs> the industry and subsidise well, buyers. Well, yeah. Well, you know, as we know, 
a little bit of a little bit of subsidy never go, never goes astray. Never there. goes astray, John. No, no. Um, yeah, well, I mean, electric electric vehicles are starting to take off in in USA and to a lesser degree here, although they seem to be revving up revving up reasonably reasonably fast, and that that does do a lot for for emissions, um, but of course it does nothing else. Doesn't do anything for for congestion or the ability to have a, a high speed crash that kills lots of people. That's that's um, that's still quite possible with your lovely electric electric vehicle. Uh, but they do at least have the advantage of cutting down on uh, on pollution from the tailpipe. There's none and um, less noise. Yeah, but well, they can still interesting. Make a big... Paris yeah. recently had a uh, a referendum. Yeah, uh, did you see that at all? And uh, I, I saw that they were having one. I didn't catch the result. Well, they they were a very small turnout, but they voted. Um, right. They fifty four percent of the people voted to um, to uh-huh. charge higher parking fees for SUVs. Right. Um, uh, in fact, up to thirty dollars an hour, and then it increases as you go on, compared right. to other cars. Uh, right. But the city council said two-thirds of Parisians now do not own a car, adding mm. that SUV collisions with pedestrians, the point you were just making, collisions yeah. with pedestrians, are twice as deadly as accidents involving smaller cars. And um, yeah. But they're, you know, they're trying to get rid of them altogether. Yeah. Well, again, you see, it's the, the American influence. Um, the, 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 these, these trucks tend to have a huge bluff nose on them. Which which is very pedestrian unfriendly, and the pedestrians who are hit by that are you know much more like well as you said much more likely to be injured or dead, um, and um, again the trucks in America that that are the basis of all these um, fetishes that are taking place around the world for these trucks are, are don't even have to meet the same safety requirements as cars either. They they have lower pollution standards and lower safety standards. So you know I can quite see the point of getting, of a, you know, getting rid of them in large cities um, like Paris. Um, and the the gov- the, um, the, the um, city council in Paris wants to uh, widen uh, footpaths and um, put in uh, far more green green spaces in the city and reduce the amount of. Um, of space given over to cars, um, again conscious of climate change and trying to keep the city um, a bearable place to live as, as temperatures rise. Well, the current mayor Anne Hidalgo, she says um, she wants to make Paris less car friendly. Yeah. Um, she motor vehicles have been banned from some roads, most notably a river Seine. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.